Well, good evening and thanks for joining us this evening as we continue our series on the second half of 1 Samuel. Let's read the passage. We're looking at the story tonight of David and Goliath. And if you want to follow the reading, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'll read the start and the end of the story. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll begin at verse 1. It's it's a story of a conflict between two champions. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azarkah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistines' camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That's that's over by nine and a half feet. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point, just notice the mixture of technologies here, the iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The next part of the uh, chapter introduces us to David and uh, recaps a bit of his background. And David eventually offers to go and fight Goliath. So let's read from verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran over and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This story of David and Goliath is one of the most iconic and well-known ancient stories in the English-speaking world. In case you aren't familiar with the story, uh, let me outline it and later we'll look at some of the details. Now we're going back about 3,000 years uh, in the land of Israel. Israel at the time was led by King Saul. Saul was probably the biggest Israelite they had. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. But now Israel was uh, facing uh, an enemy nation called the Philistines. And the armies of these two nations were lined up against each other on either side of a valley. Now, in those days, it was not an uncommon practice for battles to be resolved in a more humane way than simply having two armies massacring each other. Each side would choose a champion to represent the whole army, a bit like a gladiator from each side uh, facing each other. And the two two champions would fight each other to decide the outcome. Then the Philistines revealed their secret weapon. Their champion was a real giant called Goliath. He stood nearly three meters tall. He was built like a tank. He had armor like a tank. He had fearsome weapons. And he stepped out and challenged the champion of Israel to fight him. I suppose the obvious champion for Israel was King Saul. Saul was the closest Israel had to a giant. And he was their biggest and best equipped soldier. And that indeed was why Israel had wanted Saul uh, to be their king. Israel believed that the biggest is the best. But when Saul saw Goliath, he felt powerless and he refused to fight Goliath. All his bravest soldiers refused to fight Goliath. Who could be powerful enough to get through Goliath's armor and to avoid his massive weapons? To Saul and the Israelites, it was basically power against power. And when Saul saw Goliath, uh, he saw what the outcome was going to be. But then a young man called David came onto the scene. 
we thought about David last week. David was a shepherd. And David, above all else, he understood God. When David heard Goliath making fun of the God of Israel, David knew that Goliath could be beaten. So David volunteered to fight Goliath. Now, Saul was glad of any offers. He offered his armor and sword to David, but David decided not to wear it. Instead, David went uh, out to face Goliath with only a sling as a weapon. Now, it doesn't sound much, but actually a sling is a pretty deadly weapon in the hands of an expert. Uh, it could, uh, it fired a heavy stone between somewhere like a, between a golf ball and a tennis ball. If you just think of the speed that a sling could get up, it would be, this stone would travel at somewhere between 60 and 100 miles an hour. And uh, it fired it from a distance like a gun. So David fired a stone at the one uncovered point uh, in Goliath's body. As Goliath came forward, it says that his shield bearer, Goliath didn't carry his own sword, his own shield. He had some poor man go in front of him to hold up the shield. Goliath had to look over the shield. So the only part of Goliath that was exposed was his face and his head. And that's what David aimed for, just below his helmet, but above his nose. And he fired his stone at that one vulnerable part of Goliath's body. And Goliath collapsed uh, out for the count. And David rushed up and used Goliath's own massive sword to cut off Goliath's head. And the battle had been won. Now that battle between Goliath and David has entered into the English language as a way of describing any unequal contest between a strong, powerful opponent and what we call an underdog. It has been used in football to describe a cup match between a wealthy Premier League team and a much more lowly team of amateurs. It has been used sometimes to describe a legal battle between a large multinational company and maybe a single individual who can't afford highly paid lawyers but who has right on their side. Many Christians have found the story of David and Goliath inspiring when they face the prospect of a major trauma or difficulty in their lives. Perhaps we get a diagnosis of a serious illness which destroys all our hopes and plans for the future. Or we face the loss of our job and we don't see how we're going to survive financially. Or perhaps there's the fear that the marriage is about to break up. These fears and threats can loom over us like a great giant which is far beyond our ability to cope. Sometimes we react like King Saul. We feel helpless and powerless and we hide from the problem and don't face it. But when Christians are facing a giant problem in their lives, which they cannot possibly overcome by themselves, sometimes they remember that the Lord Jesus came, like David came to face Goliath. The Lord Jesus came to save us. And the picture of David going out alone to face Goliath on behalf of the whole nation reminds us of the Lord Jesus 
who went on his own to the cross to fight the battle against sin and death and hell. The picture of the Lord Jesus facing our giants on behalf of us has inspired countless Christians to keep trusting the Lord in the most frightening of circumstances. So that is one way of applying the story of David and Goliath to our lives, to apply it personally. And I don't want to demean that application in any way, but I would like to look at the story as a picture of some of the bigger battles that have been fought out in history of humanity at a much higher level. Because this story provides a very accurate illustration of some of the greatest battles that are described in the New Testament. And perhaps the greatest battle is the goal of people coming to true faith in God. Goliath illustrates the different forces at work in our world which are trying to stop people coming to true faith in God. So before we return to the details of the story itself, let's consider the main challenges in our, uh, in our world, the challenges to coming to true faith in God. Now, I'll, I'll warn you in advance that this won't be as exciting as the details of the story of David and Goliath itself. It may seem a little bit more abstract, but nevertheless, it matches what the New Testament highlights about the really significant battles from God's point of view in our world today. The New Testament highlights some of the key challenges in this battle to bring people to real faith. And there are two different categories of giants, if I could put it like that, which have always tried to stop people coming to true faith in God. I mean, Goliath, when you think of him, represented extreme humanity. That's what he was. He was an extreme man without God. And in that sense, Goliath is like a picture of humanity in all its strength, with all its technology, and with all its capability, but without God. And we see that same uh, picture of humanity in two ways in the New Testament. First of all, we see false human religious thinking. I'll give some examples of this in a minute. But that false religious thinking, even in the name of Christianity, is one of the big barriers to people coming to genuine faith. And the other giant, if I could put it like this, is almost the opposite. But it's false human atheistic thinking. Humanity that boldly, confidently says there is no God. So, let's think of these two. You may find it surprising to hear me say that religion can stop people finding God. Some people think, well, it's a good halfway point to finding the truth. But let me illustrate the point by asking you a question. Uh, and whether you believe in God or not, I'd just like you to imagine this situation and answer the question to yourself. Suppose you were to die tonight and found yourself, perhaps to your surprise, standing before God. And God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? 
That question has been asked, or something like it, all over the world. And many, time and time again, the answer is the same. Whatever someone's religious background, perhaps no religion at all, sometimes uh, even people around the church here that we've talked to, they would say something like this, well, I'm not perfect, but I haven't been a really bad person. I try to be helpful to others. I haven't done anything really bad. And on balance, I hope I've done more good things than bad things. That's why, uh, that's what I would say to God. I can't be sure that I'll be in heaven, but that's what I would hope. It sounds reasonable and logical, doesn't it? I mean, after all, if God is good, would he not want people to try to be good? And this is one of the fundamental principles of human reasoning, which permeates religion, all religion, throughout the world. And we would call that maybe the, the teaching that being accepted by God depends on our good works, on doing good works. Now, there are reasons why that is false and rather obvious reasons. Firstly, it doesn't work. You never know whether you've been good enough. You don't know whether you've done enough good things. You don't know if you're going to do something bad in the future which will disqualify you. So you can never know if you've been accepted by God. And religion based on doing good does not lead people to trust God. It does the opposite. It forces them to trust in themselves and in trying to be good. Being accepted by God and getting to heaven depends on our own efforts if we follow that thinking. The second reason why the logic is false comes from looking at the history of religion based on good works. Because when people are desperate to be accepted by God, but they feel inadequate in themselves, it leaves them wide open to being manipulated by uh, scheming religious teachers. Now, let me just give you one or two examples. <clears throat> it leaves us open to being manipulated, sometimes by false threats or by false promises. I'll give you an example of each, by false threats. During the Middle Ages, if you know your history, the Roman Catholic Church exercised extreme power over the kings of Europe by inventing the teaching that you can only get to heaven if you are a member of the Roman Catholic Church. So if you are put out of the church, excommunication as we call it, then you are going to hell. Now this teaching isn't in the Bible, but because the Bible was written in Latin and very few people understood it, they just trusted the teaching of the church. But many of the kings of Europe were so afraid of hell that they relied on the church to get them to heaven and they accepted the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. In that sense, they were being controlled and manipulated by human religious teaching and by false threats. Now, what about being manipulated by false promises? And here we come to a more modern example, which is sadly common uh, among what we loosely call evangelicals. And this is a false teaching that if you give money to God, then God will reward you by making you wealthy or healthy. Or more generally, if you do good things, your life will go well. 
you will be successful. It is sometimes called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. And in a way, if you don't know the details of the Bible, it sounds logical. I mean, surely, if God's going to reward anybody, he would reward those who do good and who give to him and would make their lives more successful. Of course, the real motivation behind this false teaching is very human. Many people simply want their lives to go well. They want to become wealthy. And they're prepared to do what the preachers tell them, even if it means giving money first. After all, uh, surely if I give money to God, he has a duty to reward me. That's human reasoning. And this teaching has produced what are called so-called uh, megachurches, networks of churches that draw vast crowds of people who want to become successful and wealthy. Of course, the reason some preachers make up this false teaching is so that the preachers and their organizations can become rich and powerful. They twist the teaching of the Bible to appeal to people's human desires. They exploit the poor and the vulnerable. But it can deceive people so that they don't seek to find true faith in God. So these are some of the reasons why human-controlled religion is like a giant which hinders people from coming to true faith in God. These fundamental ideas which underpin religion make it harder to tell people that you only need to trust Jesus alone. It makes it harder to tell people to stop trusting in their own efforts to be good, and it makes it harder to tell people to stop trusting in their church or in their religious system. So what is the answer to this? Uh, there have been many philosophers, uh, political theorists that have seen the problem, but they come up with a different answer. And their response to some in our world is to blame religion for the problem and to react against religion. They say, the problem is religion, all religion. We need to get rid of religion and any idea that there is a God. We must need to set people free from manipulation and control. We need to get set people free from this idea that there is a God. And so they say the answer is atheism. And in our own country and in the West in general, this is the giant which is emerging and getting stronger. So let's look at what happens when a society rejects the idea that there is a God and is founded on the principle of atheism. So when a society is not simply neutral on the issue of whether or not there's a God, but when it actively teaches and promotes the teaching that there is no God, what happens? Are they free? Does society end up free from manipulation and control? Well, if you look at the history of the last 100 years, we can see what that teaching leads to. We've actually witnessed experiments when countries have banned the teaching of the Bible, any discussion of God, banned any public discussions about God. For example, the Marxist ideology underpinning the Soviet Union led them to close churches, to put Christians in prison, to ban the Bible, and even to stop 
parents teaching their children from the Bible. And what have we found happens? Does that set people free? Well, it does precisely the opposite. If you look at those countries which are based on this ideology, they end up um, being extreme dictatorships. The state is all-powerful, and it feels the need to control people's thinking, much more radically than even a religious society. The massive resources of the state are turned against vulnerable believers, believers who have no influence whatever uh, in society. The state has done everything it can to stop people thinking about God. They carefully control the textbooks in schools. They control access to television and to the internet. And the atheistic teaching of the state, like Goliath, is trying to stop people even thinking about God and certainly not coming to faith in God. Now, most of us in the West have escaped that sort of control, at least directly. But the giant of atheistic thinking uses different weapons in the West. And if I could just sum these up, uh, the tactics of this giant in the West as uh, this, call it maybe naturalism, and it's enforced in science and even in theology. Now, let me just unpack that a little. Naturalism is the teaching that basically nature is all there is. Everything has a purely natural scientific explanation. And that sort of thinking, which eliminates God as an explanation for anything, permeates, permeates not only science, but also, strangely, theology. Uh, the only acceptable worldview is that human life has evolved from nothing by purely natural processes. It is claimed that this has been proven by science. Of course, it's very far from the truth. The more, the more scientists discover about the operation of the cell, the harder it is to sustain the idea that it all happened by chance. But it's practically impossible to get uh, an academic paper published in a scientific journal if you say that you believe that the cell was intelligently designed. And that same spirit of naturalism is evident in the academic world of theology and liberal biblical scholarship. It's extremely difficult to have your work published and accepted if you say that the Bible is inspired by God and is free from error. Now, fortunately, there are some fine Christian scientists and academics who have been able to succeed in this world without compromising. But they're under constant pressure, and they have to be very careful about how they express themselves. So human atheistic and naturalistic thinking is another giant which operates in our world, again, to try to stop people coming to true faith in God and even to encourage those who have, do have faith in God, but trying to get them to give it up. And after all that discussion of more abstract giants, let's return to some of the details in the story of David and Goliath. But just bear those pressures, those giants in mind. So far, I've only been talking about Goliath. 
as the giants and what he represents in our modern world. But I'd like briefly to focus on the two other key people in the story, King Saul and David. And in each case, I'd like to point you to how the New Testament applies the picture. First of all, what was King Saul's response to Goliath? Well, he was terrified, but the reason he was terrified is that he thought he had to fight fire with fire. In other words, Saul continued to think like a Philistine. He thought, you need a big man, you need armor, and you need weapons if you're going to fight someone like Goliath. He just thought even the way Goliath thought. And the reason he failed even to engage in the battle was because he insisted on trusting in his own natural strengths. And his own natural strengths were just not up to uh, confronting the giant that stood before him. But he refused to change his whole way of thinking. Now, who is the New Testament version of Saul? And is there someone in the New Testament whose thinking reflected that thinking of King Saul? Well, there is someone in the New Testament called Saul. At least at the start, he's introduced to us as Saul, uh, but his name then changed to Paul. And interestingly, he said he was, like Saul, the Old Testament Saul, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. I think Saul's parents, the New Testament Saul, his parents hoped that he would become a leading Jewish figure in the Jewish establishment like his predecessor, King Saul. And Saul, uh, or Paul as he then became, in one of his writings, he ended up, after he was converted, writing most of the books of the New Testament. But he describes his early trajectory in life and in his career. And he was indeed heading to become one of the top figures in Judaism and in the land of Israel. He describes that he was depending on his good works, what he calls keeping the law. So he epitomized very much uh, what that first giant that I mentioned uh, if you like, religion, human religion, this idea that you will be accepted by God, you will be righteous if you keep the law and do good works. But what he found in his own experience was that it did not make him right with God. What the, the, the technical term for that is righteous. But he had no personal relationship with God because he was always just trying to do more good. He wasn't sure if he had done enough and so on. So he had no relationship with God. But then he met Jesus in a vision. And that was what totally transformed him. He didn't recognize God when he saw him. But when he met Jesus and accepted uh, Jesus' authority, uh, his life was totally transformed. And he discovered that he could be right with God through faith. In other words, he was set free from religious control and manipulation. I remember talking to uh, a Muslim colleague of mine in work, and we were discussing the differences between Christianity and Islam. And I said that in Christianity, when a person becomes a Christian, God declares to them, you are right 
with me. Your sins are forgiven. That whole question has been dealt with. And you are now right with me forever. And my colleague was stunned. He says, we don't have anything like that in Islam. We don't have anything like that. I haven't seen it in any other religion. He said, that's not a religion. Because you're throwing away the greatest lever you have to control people. If you tell people that you are right with God, you can't control them. You can't make them threats to them. You can't threaten them with hell. You can't threaten them with punishment. You've thrown away all control over them. He got exactly the right point. And that's what Paul, the New Testament Paul, discovered. He found that he was yet a new source of righteousness. And in that chapter, in Philippians chapter 3, this is how he puts it. He, he describes himself now as not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from good works, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, by trusting Jesus, by putting his faith in Jesus, he had discovered what he could never find through religion. And Jesus had overcome the first giant in his life, the giant of human religion and the misuse of even good religion. Now, that was how Saul responded. What about David's response to Goliath? The details of David's strategy are interesting. David tried on Saul's armor, as we read, but then he put it off. He says, I'm not used to this. I don't feel comfortable with this. It wasn't that it didn't fit. It's interesting that David was no wimp. Saul, who was head and shoulders above everybody else, David's armor fitted, sorry, Saul's armor fitted David. It's just that uh, he wasn't used to it. So David faced Goliath with no armor. And in that sense, David did not rely on what Goliath or Saul relied on. He didn't, he didn't take Saul's weapons either. But he did have a weapon, and a deadly one at that. And it, David's tactics, what they did was to expose the powerlessness of Goliath. Now, let me just explain how that was. It's really quite simple. When you think of Goliath, his, he had a sword, that was for very close combat. He had a spear, which he could lunge at people with, which as long as you kept, what, maybe 15, 20 feet away from him, you were safe. And he had a spear, uh, sorry, a javelin, which he could, he could throw once. He had one shot at you. And if you could keep far enough away, so if you saw the spear coming and you, you were agile, <clears throat> you could dodge it, then Goliath was actually powerless. The secret is, could you get through his armor? And again, that's what David did. So Goliath, as long as you didn't think like Goliath and you didn't think like Saul, Goliath was actually very vulnerable. And David exposed the powerlessness of Goliath. Goliath thought David was weak, but actually it was David, sorry, it was Goliath who was weak. And it was actually David's vulnerability that defeated Goliath's self-confidence. So here we get a bit of an inkling that self-confidence 
is a threat. Being confident in your own abilities, your technology, and everything that you have made and that you can do, that is actually a weakness. David's real strength was that he trusted in God. He knew that because this person had defied God, he was dead meat. And because David thought differently, he was able to find a strategy which would defeat Goliath. Now, let's apply that. How has Jesus, if you like, overcome the second uh, giant, particularly in Western society? How does belief in Jesus overcome atheistic ways of thinking and manipulation? By this, we're talking about atheistic power. If I could use these words, which will be relevant later. The power, the threats that uh, the establishment can make on people who refuse to accept the atheistic worldview. And the, the wisdom, if I could use that to represent what scientists and scholars uh, come up with, atheistic, naturalistic scientists, if we call that naturalistic wisdom, so I'll use those two words, power and wisdom. Because when Jesus went to the cross, if you can just visualize that journey of the Lord Jesus going to the cross alone and vulnerable, that was like David going out to meet Goliath on behalf of the helpless army of Israel. And in that way, when the Lord went to the cross, it was, he was going to fight a battle. He was going to fight a battle that would overcome all those forces that we've, and ideologies that we've been talking about this evening that keep people in uh, darkness, that control people and their thinking. Jesus was going to fight a battle on the cross that would set people free from that control and manipulation. Here's what Paul says when he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, the message of the cross, he says, it looks like foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just notice the emphasis on foolishness and wisdom and power and weakness in this. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And just as David's tactics, and in fact David, when he came to face Goliath, Goliath mocked him for his weakness, for his lack of weapons, for his lack of strength and power. And yet David's uh, very uh, agility through not having all that armor was his strength. It's just that what this world calls foolishness is sometimes real wisdom. And so it is with the cross. Some people look at the fact that the Lord Jesus died and they said Christianity it must have failed. But actually that was the greatest victory because the fact that Christ faced death he faced the, the pressures of the religious establishment. He faced the supposed power of the secular world power of the time of Rome. It looked as though he was a victim of that, but actually he defeated 
all those false human concepts of power and wisdom and religion. I just want to leave those two giants with you as a way for you, almost as a mirror to hold up to your own life, to analyse, if you're not yet a Christian, analyse why is it that I have not yet come to faith in God? Think of those two giants, modern-day giants that I mentioned, and just go through the list in your mind and say, am I depending on my good works? Uh, or have I swallowed the atheistic worldview around me? Am I afraid of the intimidation, of the mockery that I might uh, receive if I said I believed in God? Just whatever it might be, just hold those up to yourself as a mirror to try to analyse what it is that is holding you back from coming to true faith in God. Or alternatively, if you are a Christian, but maybe you've got relatives or friends that you sometimes talk to about these issues. Maybe just in your own mind, analyze them, use this story and those two giants and the subcategories to try to work out what is it that is holding them back from coming to true faith. Because the New Testament does highlight these, these two mega giants, if you like, in people's thinking. And it may help you as you, you seek to present the truth to them about why Jesus is the only answer. Let's just close in a moment's prayer. Our Father, we thank you as we read this story which has captured the imagination of even secular humanity across the world. We thank you that it carries such a powerful message to those who are Christians and even to those who are not, but would like to know the truth. And we pray, Father, that as each of, these, each of us considers uh, the issues that are raised, we pray that we would bring our lives to you, not be deceived by what this world throws at us, but to come to a knowledge of the truth as revealed in the Lord Jesus. Amen.